So our uh, scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. This is chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Let's listen together for the Word of God. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Word of God for the people of God. So uh, it's January 7th, and you guys all know what that means, right? Yeah, and the liturgical calendar, it's the first Sunday after Epiphany. We all knew that. I certainly didn't Google that earlier this morning. But it's also one week since the new year began, which means that by now most Americans have given up on our New Year's resolutions and are spinning out of control in the resulting spiral of shame. <laughs> I know it's true because I've been there. 40% of Americans make resolutions every new year. But less than 10% of us are able to keep our resolutions for longer than a few months. So, if you're in that 40% this year, I am really rooting for you. But you're probably not going to make it. <laughs> Don't blame me, though, all right? It's just science. It's just statistics. Don't shoot the messenger. Scientists have actually put some energy into explaining uh, our dismal success rate at New Year's resolutions. And some psychologists have pointed to something called false hope syndrome, which is not the name of an emo band, <laughs> but someone should make that happen. <laughs> false hope syndrome is characterized by someone's expectations about changing his or her behavior. As it turns out, and you will be shocked to hear this, we are unrealistic about changing our habits. We think it will take less time and less effort and that we will achieve bigger results than is actually likely to happen. We don't anticipate all of the consequences that will come from changing our lifestyle, and that makes it difficult to cope. Another factor is that we don't really understand ourselves or our own motivations. Most people assume that if the goal is really important, that will motivate us to stick with it. But this is never true. The only motivator that consistently works is whether the new habit we are trying to form is fun. Well, let's consider the most common New Year's resolutions. The top four are losing weight, exercising more, quitting smoking, and saving money. These are all arguably important, or could be, depending on your situation. But for most people, none of these are fun. So we bring these unrealistic expectations and poor motivations to our self-improvement projects. But the simple truth is that change is hard. And when our best intentions come up against this hard truth, most of us just give up. 
And yet, year after year, we start over. The possibility of turning over a new leaf, of turning the page to a new chapter in our lives, one in which we are healthier and happier and more secure, is just really compelling and hopeful. And so we sign up for one more resolution, thinking this time it will work. This time, I will be a better person. So this is some of the reality that we bring with us to church in the new year. And the story that's been chosen for us on the first Sunday of the new year is the story of Jesus being baptized by John. It opens with all of the people from the city and the countryside coming out to the wilderness to be baptized for the forgiveness of, of sins. And I think we are meant to identify with those people dragging their disappointing selves out to the wilderness and submerging themselves in the Jordan River so that the flowing waters can carry away their failures and weaknesses and abandon New Year's resolutions so that they can emerge from the water reborn as new people, healthier, happier, and more secure. I think we've got something in common with these folks. But what is Jesus doing there? What sins does he have? What regrets could Jesus possibly be bringing to the river? Did he skip the gym for a month? Did he eat an entire pizza in one sitting? Could he not kick his nicotine habit? Spend his last dollar on scratch-offs? It seems sacrilegious to think of Jesus as being forgiven for sins, to consider the second person of the Trinity as a disciple of John the Baptist, to picture him being baptized. Shouldn't all of this be the other way around? If there's something about this part of the story that bothers you, then you are in really good company. There are, these are concerns that have troubled Christians since the earliest days. In fact, you can see the tension even in the Bible itself. When you compare the different versions of the story about the baptism, um, you can see the gospel writers um, thought it was really important that we not get the wrong idea about the relationship between John and Jesus. In Matthew's version of the baptism, John does this sort of little awkward dance with Jesus before baptizing him, at first insisting that he is unworthy and that Jesus should be the one baptizing him before finally giving in and baptizing him. And although Mark honors John the Baptist by beginning his gospel with him, the gospel of John begins with Jesus. And not like little baby Jesus, but word of God Jesus, like creator of the universe Jesus. Just so we don't get any funny ideas, about where John the Baptist stands in the pecking order of the gospel. Nonetheless, in every telling of the story, Jesus is baptized by John. But if he has no sins to confess, then what is Jesus doing there? Well, it's one of the ways that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. It's a part of the incarnation that began with Mary's pregnancy, in which God is not just with us, not just next to us, not just us adjacent but actually becomes one of us. Jesus gets in line with the sinners, waits his turn at the river's edge, allows himself to be pushed beneath the surface of the water, and emerges dripping wet and exposed. Not for his own salvation, not to eradicate feelings of shame or guilt, and not to avoid the coming wrath of God. He comes for baptism because we do, because we long for new beginnings because he is one of us. But when he does, something happens that does not happen when we are baptized. The heavens open, a dove descends, and a voice says, you are my beloved, 
with you, I am well pleased. And those are words I think that we all long to hear. If not from God, then at least from other people. And isn't that what really motivates us? What drives all of our self-improvement projects? Isn't that what causes us to make resolutions again and again and again? On some maybe subconscious level, don't we think that we will be more worthy of love if we can just get in shape, just get organized, just earn a little more money, just get sober? Then at last we will be the beloved. And when we fail to do these things, our perverse logic leads us to the conclusion that we aren't yet worthy of love, which is just great. Now on top of everything else, we failed to be lovable. And the shame spiral begins. But Jesus is not driven by this faulty logic. What drives Jesus is the conviction that God is love and that God loves him. You never hear Jesus worrying about his weight loss goals, his exercise routine, his savings plan. But you do hear his concern for others. Healing for the sick, freedom for the poor, liberation for the oppressed. Jesus' energy is directed outwards. And maybe it's because he accepts that he is already loved, that he can direct his energy to others instead of to himself. Maybe this would be true for us too. Maybe if we weren't consumed by our efforts to earn love, we'd be more free to love others. I mentioned earlier the top four resolutions. 55% uh, of them are related to our health. 35% of them are related to our jobs. Only 5% are related to others. Only 2% resolve to spend more time with their family. Only 3% resolve to enjoy life. <laughs> Which <laughs> is one of the saddest things I heard <laughs> a whole week. And a statistically insignificant number of people resolve to help others. It was actually listed in the survey report as 0%. And I see a lot of irony in this. If what we really want is to feel loved, if our self-improvement projects are secretly attempts to earn the love of others, then there is some irony that we direct so much energy to ourselves and so little to just actually loving people. So what if this year we resolve to change that? What if we accepted that we are saved by grace through faith alone? What if we accepted that we are lovable? What if instead of trying to earn love, we just loved others like Jesus did? Well, whatever you decide to do with your resolutions uh, this year, there is good news. And uh, I think that Nadia Boltz-Weber puts it the best. Every new year, she tweets this message. There is no resolution that, if kept, will make me more worthy of love. Amen.